3CR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boorung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people to the face of arguing, ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Judith. <laughs> Thank you. I just wasn't sure where to jump in there. You can jump in any time. It's lovely to have you back. Oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful welcome. Yeah, Judith, uh, for listeners that might not be uh, aware, was a old breakfaster on our team, uh, going back before Alice even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Alice came along and then Ella. So it's lovely to have you back this morning. And I know that uh, listeners that have been tuning in uh, for a, a while this morning have uh, been listening to Earth Matters. And that's, uh, that's Judith, who you were listening to. And she's going to bring us some of those stories this morning. So we're lucky to have her with us. Yeah, well, thanks. It's great to be here. It's really fun to be in the studio and great to meet Grace. And uh, yeah, really fabulous. Thank you. Grace has been a bit of a superstar the last two weeks. Uh, Ella and I have been away on holiday and uh, Grace has done a great job. And it's lovely to have Jacob back last week as well. Yes, it was really lovely. Like, to be honest, I was a bit nervous because um, I'm still trying to get things by. And um, obviously it's kind of hard because I really chopped into the deep end. But then I was so, so grateful that Jacob came by and honestly, it, um, it they helped me a lot because I, I just had to do things halfway and like, so not too bad. And then, But then now I'm here and I'm on the panel and I'm helping both of you and uh, being here, so I'm actually very nervous. Yeah, and all those knobs and, and buttons. and That's Yeah, true. I know. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> all it's, I can say is Grace is a lot better at it all than me. <laughs> I can do the talking, but Grace is always on the, the knobs and buttons. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. But it's okay. I'm, I'm practicing and trying my best here, so yeah. Yeah. And so what's, what's on the show this morning? Well, we've ended up with a bit of an environmental special, so you've uh, sort of really led us that way, Judith. Um, do you want to talk about your first piece? Yes, well, I, I guess the first thing I should say is if people have been listening since 6.30, they would have heard Earth Matters, this week's Earth Matters. And so, um, and the last interview in that segment was um, with Yaron Cousins Bundle, a good Mara whale dreaming custodian and also um, chair of or coordinator of, of SOPEC, which has been very active on preventing seismic blasting in the Otway Basin. So I had a wonderful interview with Yaron and, and I wasn't able to include all of it in the Earth Matters show because there were a lot of voices there. And so today we're going to hear this morning. We're going to hear a longer version of that interview. Very excited to present it this morning. And then we'll follow on from there with uh, a story uh, from Eidwin, who also is a presenter on Earth Matters. And uh, she spoke with a scientist and environmental historian, Professor Rowan Lloyd. And uh, he has just 
launched a book, I believe it's coming out today, called Saving the Reef. So that's going to be a segment talking about the Great Barrier Reef and particularly the way um, humans and the political uh, side of saving the reef has sort of tracked over the, the decades and bringing us up to speed with uh, where we're at on that one. And... We'll follow that with another Australian natural icon, the koala. So another book being launched today, Koala, A Life in Trees, and that is written by Dr Danielle Claude, who's a biologist and a professor of creative writing in, at Flinders University. So she'll be joining us live to chat about that. That's amazing. And then after that, I will be wrapping up with where I'll be speaking to Ned Jumpichimba Hargraves, who we also call Uncle Ned discussing the no police gun campaigns and a Queensland company called NIAO that makes guns and uh, equipments for the Australian police force, where we will further discuss the social and possible environmental ramifications to this that it will cause for the nation. Well, before we head on to our segments, I've got a little song for you. This is Song for the Eureka Stockade by David Rowicks. From every corner of the world They came from all around When in 1851 They struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses And vowed to end this curse They swore an oath beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun Brown tried to divide them, giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby, and they heard the miners shouting, We're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store, and on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The Crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd won an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie Waller and the rest 
they drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun. They swore an oath beneath the southern cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun. And that was Song for the Eureka Stockade by David Rowicks. I'll now be handing on to Judith, who will be speaking for the next segment. Yes, and uh, thanks, Grace. That's great. Um, so for people who didn't hear uh, Earth Matters from 6.30 to 7, I'll just give a little background to this next interview. So um, in August this year, along the southwest coast of Victoria, and people will know it if they've driven along the Great Ocean Road. Uh, people who live in the southwest coast heard that multinational companies Schlumberger and TGS were seeking approval to conduct 3D seismic surveys in a huge area of the Otway Basin, and that's just along that southern coastline, southwest coastline there of Victoria, and extending from Tassie all up to um, South Australia. So I'm wondering, have you heard at all what um, seismic tests are? Have you heard much about them? I heard the news that that was proposed, so yeah, I'm really interested to hear more about do, it. Do you know what they are? Well, it's earth, earthquake-related. Oh, no. <laughs> well, well, earthquake is that's, uh, very dramatic, and they are dramatic. So, they're. I mean, this is my experience too. You know, when I talk to people, because whenever I'm doing a story, I don't know what you're like, but I get so absorbed, and <laughs> so I ask people, "Do you know what seismic testing is?" And and most people like you have an idea, but not you know not uh, in depth kind of thing. So. I always think it's important just to, to describe what that is. So basically it's used to locate fossil fuels under the seabed. And so just this is what you can imagine, okay? So you have boats towing air guns and receivers all in a grid in, in a kind of contained area. They, in fact, have to have pilot boats go out and move anyone who's in the area because there can't be anyone in the area they're doing the testing. So the air guns send sound waves down to the water column deep into the ocean floor. It has to go into the ocean floor because they're looking for gas and oil reserves. And then the sound waves bounce back, and that helps them to locate where potential fossil fuel reserves are. So these blasts are up to 250 decibels every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months often at a time, like 70 days to, you know, three months. Wow. Now imagine being in the water <laughs> with this going on. So obviously, I mean, there's not lots of research, but uh, the research that we have tells us that, um, you know, these blasts damage and kill zooplankton and krill. And of course, this is important food for whales, among other creatures as well. 
and um, it uh, it kills um, scallops. So this affects the fissures, and it also damages the nervous systems of lobsters, and uh, and, and of course it affects the breeding negatively of whales, their breeding, their feeding, their migration, and it makes them very vulnerable then to errors in navigation and predation as well. So, And the other thing I think that's important to know is that because sound travels further and faster underwater, the seismic air guns can be heard in the ocean kilometres away from the actual blast. So I think uh, hopefully that fills people in if, if they didn't hear you know, the earlier show. If we weren't shocked before, we're shocked now. <laughs> yes, that's right. And this is a proposal, Judith? Yeah, this is a proposal. Although these tests have already been done in the Otway Basin before, so this is a proposal to do even more. Um, and um, so that news, at the moment, though, proposal, as you say, so permission has been sought to do even more seismic tests in the Otway Basin. And um, this has really raised alarms, as you can imagine. I mean, I'm just looking at your faces as I was describing <laughs> what it is. Um, but has raised alarms among, you know, the environmentalists, fishers and First Nations peoples. So one of the people I spoke to for the Earth Matters show was uh, Yaren Cousins Bundle. And we're going to now hear from her a, a longer version of that interview. She's a Gunjitmara whale dreaming custodian. She's coordinator of SOPEC, the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective, and they've got a Facebook page, so you can always check it there. So I spoke to Yaren on September 20th. It turned out to be significant, as you'll hear, and I began by asking her about her responsibilities as a whale-dreaming custodian. My particular responsibilities are focused around protecting country carrying on the cultural knowledge of country and passing that on to our younger generations, protecting those sites where we continue to have our cultural practices reclaimed and rebirthed. So it's really important. Yes, and I understand that there's more than one whale-dreaming custodian. Yeah, there's a group of us, male and female, Gunditjmara community members that hold and are responsible for the whale-dreaming to continue and to go on to our next generations. And you're the coordinator of SOPEC, the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective. When was SOPEC set up? That was set up a few years ago in response to the growing industrialisation across Gunditjmara country, which includes part of the Otway Basin. When you say industrialisation, what are you referring to? The seismic blasting and the gas exploration and resource extraction. What does SOPEC do to address this issue, to draw attention to it? SOPEC is made up of Gunditjmara community members and elders. We come together to make a last stand for our country, which includes spy and sea. Our purpose is to create awareness and education and understanding around our sovereign birthrights as Gunditjmara people and how the wider community can support the First Nations narrative and story in protecting country. And that includes everybody right across Southwest Vic. We hope to extend that education and understanding 
right to the heart of federal parliament because they're the ones that are approving these ecocidal approvals. They're contributing to mass extinction and mass destruction of habitat and ancient songlines that they have no authority to decide to destroy. So when you heard the news that multinational companies, TGS and Schlumberger, were seeking approval for a 3D seismic survey in the Otway Basin, you issued a press release opposing any new seismic blasting or gas well development in the Southern Ocean. What are your concerns specifically? Our major concern is TGS and Schlumberger have applied for the biggest seismic blasting attempt in the world. If this goes ahead, that means the destruction of not only the sea country, but the whale populations in the Southern Ocean. There's actually breaking news this morning that 14 sperm whales have turned up dead on King Island, off Tassie. The seismic blasting is happening across the Bass Strait and the Otway Basin. This is a stark reminder of why none of these projects should be going ahead. I noticed in your press release that you had written to TGS and Schlumberger asking them to meet with First Nations whale-dreaming custodians as well as other ocean protection groups along the coastline of Gunjitmara Sea Country. Has that happened? Well, initially, they chose to only consult and notify the Southwest fishermen industry. I think that they're doing that to deliberately bypass the rest of us primary stakeholders in the Southwest. The First Nations people should be held as primary stakeholders in these notifications and consultation processes. They need to listen to us and all of the other traditional owners across Australia that are actually saying no, no consent whatsoever from any traditional owners across Gunditjmara country for any of this seismic blasting project to go ahead. And have they gotten back to you? They responded to us. We're planning to meet them and organise more of a fight. We're coming at them to tell them no, they have no consent and they must get independent environmental reports done and cetacean protection reports done by independent cetacean experts because we're talking about protecting the whales, sea country and all of the other amazing ecological uniqueness that the Southern Ocean holds. The floor of the ocean is actually home to very many rare species right across the great southern coastal upwelling system and this needs to be addressed. And that was, uh, if you've just joined us, just tuned in or turned on your radio, I'm speaking with Yaron Cousins Bundle, coordinator of SOPEC, the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective. Now, Yaron just mentioned cetaceans. And for people who haven't heard the term before, and I have to confess that I had not, (laughs) so I had to look it up. But uh, if you haven't heard the term before, it refers to whales, dolphins, and porpoises. And I'm sure all of us here will know that that's a group of animals that are famous for their high intelligence and complex social behavior. I asked Yaron how she saw the Victorian government's responsibility in the proposed seismic surveys. 
I believe that the Victorian Dan Andrews government has deliberately gone around us First Nations in a time of so-called treaty across Victoria. None of this should be happening without our knowledge and inclusion. The fact that it's been leaked to us by the fishing community is a very clear picture on how the government thinks they can underhandedly deal with the First Nations across Victoria. And we've got a message for him that our sea country is sacred to us. Dan Andrews and his government does not have the right to destroy ancient Southern Ocean cultural heritage, underwater cultural heritage and ancient migrational pathways of the whale. And what about the federal government? The federal government is the same. Tanya, the Environment Minister, needs to recognise that First Nations are not going to back down in any stance in protection of their sacred country. They need to realise what's at risk for the future of Australia and it's not in resource extraction. When we first connected, you described this as the fight of our lives. Why did you describe it that way? I described it that way because it's true. Globally, we are in a time of mass extinction, and if we don't change the current course of human greed, basically, and consumerism, the Earth is in a lot of trouble. There was a press release by the CEO of Schoenberger, and he, in his press release, basically said, business is booming and the Southern Ocean and gas is open for business. I don't know who these CEOs think they are, but they have no connection to our country. They're foreign corporations that are only looking to take. And in regards to the Kuntabul, the last Southern right whale birthing and calving nursery that we have in Gunditjmara country, which is known as Logan's Beach in Warrnambool, that is a paramount that that is saved and protected and that marine sanctuary status is granted right along that coast. If the seismic testing and blasting projects are approved, what that means is miscommunication and misnavigation for the cetacean populations and that can have a detrimental effect on their birthing and calving and the numbers are just starting to recover from whaling. And and here's our federal government saying, yes, we choose resource extraction over protection of our native animals in their natural habitat. So important, absolutely so important. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? We'd just like to acknowledge the ancestors and country that I come from and that I'm speaking from today the Korn Kopunut and the Pikwarong and the Kiraiwarong language people part of Warnable. Warnable means a place between two rivers and those rivers, they are just as important, the fresh water and the salt water for us to protect. And I would like to acknowledge all of my ancestors that fought and died protecting their country. And I hope that that brings about a better understanding to the wider community 
that Australia was actually built on the blood and bones of my old people. And so it's about time that we are listened to, we are heard, and we are supported to implement solutions for country instead of these huge gas corporations taking and not only taking from the First Nations and the sea country kin, but from the Australian people as well. Thank you, Yaren. Thank you so much for your time and the great work SOPEC's doing and, and you're doing. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Yarn, on behalf of Protecting Country. It really means the world to us in the fight of our lives. And that was Yaren Cousins Bundle, and a big thank you to Yaren, and it means a lot to us too to be able to uh, hear your story and to share it uh, with the community. So Yaren Cousins Bundle is a Guntamaro whale dreaming custodian and coordinator of SOPEC, the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective. And if you're interested in finding more about the campaign to stop seismic testing in the Otway Basin and in Guntamaro country, you can check out SOPEC's Facebook page. And you could listen to the Earth Matters podcast for October 2nd if you missed it this morning. And there I speak to a number of people involved in the campaign. I hope that's okay to spook that show. Absolutely. (laughs) And uh, also, there's a petition to federal parliament you could sign to actually stop seismic testing in Australian waters. And the petition is... And if you've got your pen, you could just write this down or you could, it'll be on the website, Earth Matters website. So uh, petition EN4404, stop seismic testing in Australian waters. But you've only got eight days, so get onto it straight away. Yes, you better get onto it since it's only eight days. Well, we're going to be taking a little short break with a song for you. Um, This is... No More Whispering by Glenn Scutok. Sun went down over my hometown The night became so still Going north on a weekend run A young man I knew No more whispering in our minds No more whispering in our hearts gonna rise up to break these chains and stop these killing games one less loved one at Christmas one less loved one on birthdays but that smile won't be forgotten can you never fade away Know the joy that you gave us The twisted jokes and all We're gonna rise up for you now And for the rest who have gone 
But no more whispering in our minds No more whispering in our arms We're gonna rise up to make a change To stop these killing games So the night was blessed with evil And the soft rain began to fall Walking through the park at midnight Coastal town on early morn The shots ring out in the darkness Blood on the ground where we lay Bitter tears will fall tomorrow For the rest of our No more whispering in our minds No more whispering in our arms We're gonna rise up to make a change And stop these killing games Though there's two sides to the story Yeah, one black and one white One is fueled by the hatred Just to take another's life So the families are destroyed now By the hand that held that gun It's what the white man swears by To keep the black man on the road No more whispering in our minds No more whispering in our arms We're gonna rise up and break these chains Stop these killing games We're missing for the game today When they run for the black and white Colors of Gadooga Yeah, those mighty magpies So let's all join the line of honor Raise our glass to Cain A son of a father A child of a mother and a friend Sisters and a brother Theatre is a disability-led physical theatre company. 
Their fringe production, Still Wanna Be a Rabbit, is directed by Yumi Umamari and starts on Thursday the 6th of October and goes through till Sunday the 9th of October. Weave Movement Theatre can finally stage their show after being locked down four times over two pandemic years. The work moves between the surreal and absurd, humorously reversing perceptions of difference with film, installation and live physical performance, mischief and meaning. For details and tickets, go to melbournefringe.com.au. Weave Movement Theatre is a 3CR supporter. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, 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 rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run. And that was a song called No More Whispering by Glenn Scottop. And so, yeah, now we're back. Judith, well, how was how was the song? Did you like it? I liked it very much. It was a great song, yeah, to follow that interview. Thanks, Grace. No problem. And that was a, how did you find about that song, Claudia? I liked it too. It was very cruisy. I love it, yeah. <laughs> Glad it shows a good song. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Grace. And uh, just uh, recapping before that lovely song we heard from Judith, uh, speaking with Yaron Cousins Bundle, the Gundit Chamara Well Dreaming custodian and coordinator of SOPEC, about the seismic testing that's proposed for the Otway Basin down on Great Ocean Road. And I just wanted to give uh, listeners uh, the petition number again. So you have an opportunity to hop on uh, to the web and place your vote against this petition number EN, capital EN, 4404, Stop Seismic Testing in Australian Waters. And I can add that over a thousand people have signed already, but I know with the three CR audience there'll be another thousand, like yep. within days, just within days, oh, within hours. Hours, treated. yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're really popular. <laughs> yeah, so eight days to go. Thanks very much, and we'll also pop that on our show notes at the end of the the program when we have our podcast. Okay, so moving from the Southern Ocean to the Great Barrier Reef and continuing our environmental story this morning, we're going to hear from environmental historian Professor Rowan Lloyd. Professor Lloyd is a historian who specialises in North Queensland and Australian environmental history. He works as an English teacher at Ignatius Park College in Townsville and is an adjunct lecturer at James Cook University. Today is the launch of his first book, and it's called Saving the Reef. Edwin Jeffrey, who's another of our Earth Matters presenters, spoke to Lloyd about the book and discovered the murky politics of protecting this national treasure. This year, the Great Barrier Reef has been in the news, from mass bleaching events earlier this year, unprecedented in La Nina season, to reports of record coral cover in the Great Barrier Reef in July. There's also been a lot of misinformation. This has been coupled with the ongoing politicisation of the reef, how we view it and how we value it. Management of the reef has transferred with the new government, and while Environmental Minister Plibersek has pledged to protect the reef, it remains unclear as to what the next steps are. For a slightly different perspective today, I invited Professor Rowan Lloyd on uh, from Townsville to talk about his work in researching the history and politicisation of the Great Barrier Reef and his new book on this issue. Good morning, Rowan. 
Good morning. <laughs> Rowan, in your work, you look at the different valuations of the Great Barrier Reef since colonial history um, and, and why the specific environmental landmark is, an important, is important to Australia's sense of national identity. Could you explain sort of the, the dominant attitudes that you, you've seen around the Great Barrier Reef and why it's continued to be such a point of fascination, I suppose, for colonial and current Australia? Yeah, yeah. thanks very much for having me on. I think that's a really important question, one that I really try to get to the bottom of actually in this book, uh, Saving the Reef, but also uh, my research more broadly. I think there, there's two really key things that I don't think will be a massive surprise to your listeners. Uh, but the first one is that it's really beautiful uh, and beauty is intriguing, uh, it's fascinating, it's inspiring and those things really matter with the Great Barrier Reef. But the other thing is its size almost requires that it also be useful for something and what I mean there is it has to have some sort of economic use. So through settler engagement with the reef, those two things, that idea of its beauty but also uh, a, a, an aspiration to use it for some sort of economic purpose has been at the core of why we value this uh, great, big, beautiful reef. You've looked at the dominant narratives that have surrounded the reef. Uh, in 2016, you co-authored an essay looking at the Save the Reef campaign in the 1960s. Can you tell us a little bit about the dynamics that were at play in that campaign, the narratives and the actors that were present? Yeah, well, I should say that that paper was also written with two colleagues, uh, Maxine Newlands and uh, Theresa Petray. Um, and it was a great opportunity to talk about how history can inform our current sort of activism climate around the reef. For my part, I looked at the reefs, like the various actors that were engaging in the Save the Reef campaign in the historical period, so in the 1960s and 70s. And it was pretty clear there were scientists, there was conservationists, there was the government and also the media as well. What was particularly interesting to me is that, you know, you would imagine that scientists and conservationists would align themselves quite uh, nicely um, and that given our current climate, that perhaps the media, for example, might take, a, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, an antagonistic stance towards conservationists, given in the way that uh, some media outlets uh, behave today. But in that period of time, in the 1960s and 1970s, it was somewhat the opposite conservationists actually uh, were buoyed and given a lot of support by the, uh, the media of the day. And at times, one of their biggest battles was finding uh, allies within the sciences, at least, um, at least vocal allies within the sciences. And that was really interesting to me and to my colleagues, uh, given the way that things have changed for today. Mm, and what do you see as, I suppose, the current tensions or... or narratives that we've got surrounding the Great Barrier Reef at the moment. Do you, do you think it's become more political or more politicised? Um, I guess I guess one way you could talk about it is that the politics have become more intense. I'll probably say that they've become murkier, largely because climate change itself is such a complicated issue. It's not uh, – in the 1960s and 70s, the issue was, you know, complicated to an extent, but it was pretty stark. Do we drill the reef for oil and minerals and mine it for minerals or not? pretty clear uh, stance there. But today, the politics of climate change mean that we've got to think about fossil fuel extraction, the way that we interact with our um, environment from an agricultural point of view. And in that sort of murky world, there's uh, lots of opportunity costs and winners and losers that make it a little bit more murky. Um, and so what you see today is it definitely divisions within all those organisations and between those organisations that, uh, that aren't as clear cut uh, as they were back then. So I would say it's murkier, 
but definitely the government um, who have, or governments, because of their access to um, more science, they have the capacity to, I guess, use that science in a ways that is far more political than they had in, in, in the past. I work in the media information space and understandings of the reef is definitely murky. There's a lot of information out there. Between the actual science and the counter-information campaigns, it can be very hard for the public to understand what's actually going on. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the role of scientists uh, in giving and translating this information, especially seeing as there's been narratives in the country saying that scientists shouldn't be political or, or they shouldn't be outspoken in that way? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tough one, it's a, but it's an important question. Um, look, I think that science has had a major role in the way that we think about the reef through time, and that obviously continues to today. In the past, reef scientists were, uh, like their work was political. They talked about the reef as a place that needed to be valued uh, and that it, and they spoke about it in terms of it being undervalued. So they would say things like, uh, the reef has a, you know, enormous potential in all these areas of development, so economic development, and we need to do that, and we need science to um, help us find the ways to do that. So they were basically saying, uh, invest in science, and we'll help you invest in the reef, so to speak. And that was an important way about that was an important way in which people thought about the reef. And it was an important method for early reef science to gain uh, the necessary infrastructure to to be relevant within the uh, broader science academy. In terms of your misinformation, I think that one of the big things that have occurred is that some of those proponents who say that uh, their science has become too political, they themselves are engaged in a um, in a political act. Um, and I think that's fine. I think scientists should be political, particularly on things like environmental science, where they have so much to offer the broader public. And as you say, understanding these really complex and you know perplexing ideas of marine biology. I think one of the things that has happened with uh, un- unfortunate thing that has occurred is that the broader science academy, particularly in the marine sciences, have allowed others to politicise their work and to not, I guess, assert themselves in that venue when we really do need the scientists behind um, uh, this sort of understanding of how the climate and how we as humans impact the reef. We really need those scientists to explain those ideas to us um, and to trust that we can uh, lean into the complexities and understand the complexities but uh, be stabilised by that simple truth that we all hold, that like the reef is valuable, that we want to protect it. And, yeah, I, I hope that one of the things that emerges in the next uh, few years is that scientists don't become intense activists, but at least uh, platforms in a way to be able to sort of put this misinformation to bed. Right. And so jumping now to your book and, and what the book's going to cover or add to this story, what, what is it going to be focused on? Yeah, so Saving the Reef is really a history of uh, that I, those ideas I spoke about earlier. So where have these attitudes of conservation and exploitation of the reef come from? Have they changed through time? Um, but, you know, when I was a uh, you know, I'm more, less of an academic now, so I don't get the opportunity to talk about it as much. But when I did talk about it in academic settings or even when I was talking to it with other people, they would say, okay, so what does this history tell us about today? So I have this 
long historical narrative that basically uh, begins with the settlers' arrival with Cook and the establishment of Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority in 1975. So sort of following that trajectory of those two ideas of conserving the reef and exploiting the reef until then. And then I wanted to have this um, explanation of how this sort of history might inform what's going on today and ha- what can it teach us about today. So I have these interweaving uh, essays through the, through the book uh, that sort of speak to our current um, political and environmental crisis with the reef and try and link it to those historical narratives that I established in the broader uh, book. In your 2016 paper, you reference the Vertisen approach, which translates to the productive discourse between different actors working together to, in this case, I suppose, save the reef. Do you think this collaborative approach is still possible or do you think the... Yeah, I think that's a really... Uh, you know, important question. And I guess that is one of the things that I try to emphasize uh, in the narrative part of Saving the Reef, that the in historical narrative, that one of the reasons why the reef was, or ele- even elements of the reef, so species and uh, places were saved throughout the sort of interaction with the place was because generally people could agree that the reef was worth saving and needed to be saved in those moments. Today, I think that what occurs is there's a, uh, I'll probably call it a language of the reef, the way we talk about the reef. We use a certain set of languages, uh, you know, it might be its worth in terms of um, economic uh, economic value or its beauty. Uh, and we use that language to, or people use that, that language, I guess, to murky up whether or not the reef needs saving at all or how to save it. So there's a lot of disagreements there. And what's worse, I think at times, there's a tendency to position people as either destroyers of the reef, reefs or savers of the reef. And so we've lost a lot of that accord that's really important and or that consensus that's really important in uh, locating solutions to big complex problems like saving the reef or even climate change. Uh, it's one of the, I think, one of the things that holds us back the most. And in that 67-1975 campaign, uh, the reason why it was so successful wasn't because um, a small group of people were able to convince a large group of people of the need to uh, to save the reef, but because so many people already accepted that there was a need to save the reef. The only issue was locating consensus and accord on how to do that. Uh, today, there seems to be a lot of division about whether or not the reef needs to be saving, and I think that has a lot to do with the way we talk to each other about it. Well, thank you so much, Rowan, for coming on and giving us a different perspective, I suppose, on the reef and all the happenings that's been going on. Oh, many thanks. Really appreciate being here. Since opening its stores in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter.
Weave Movement Theatre is a disability-led physical theatre company. Their fringe production, Still Wanna Be a Rabbit, is directed by Yumi Umamari and starts on Thursday the 6th of October and goes through till Sunday the 9th of October. Weave Movement Theatre can finally stage their show after being locked down four times over two pandemic years. The work moves between the surreal and absurd, humorously reversing perceptions of difference with film, installation and live physical performance, mischief and meaning. For details and tickets, go to melbournefringe.com.au. Weave Movement Theatre is a 3CR supporter. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, 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 rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. And you're back on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 855 on the dial. And before the break, we heard from Idwood and Jeffrey from Earth Matters, speaking with environmental historian Professor Rowan Lloyd about the politics of saving the Great Barrier Reef. Professor Lloyd's book, Saving the Reef, the human story behind one of Australia's greatest environmental treasures, is published by Queensland University Press and is on sale from today. And just a reminder that Earth Matters airs every Sunday morning at 11am and it repeats at 6.30am every Wednesday morning just before our show. And we're now going to go to our next guest, Dr Danielle Claude, who has spent the past few years tracing the life of koalas. Her book, Koala, A Life in Trees, is a wonderful mix of intimate observation and scientific inquiry that tells us much about this curious and unique Australian icon. Danielle is a biologist and natural history author who holds the position of Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Flinders University in South Australia, and we have her on the line now. Welcome, Danielle. Lovely to have you on the show, and thank you for uh, giving us your time. My pleasure. And congratulations on your book. I believe you launched yesterday. Yes, yes, it it should be out in the shops now, so that's lovely to see. Very exciting. So it seems like you've been up and down trees yourself writing this book. I was reading through and it seems that you've uh, been on canoes, caves, trees, everywhere, uh, different states of Australia, learning as much as possible about the koala. Can you tell us what drew you to this as a subject? Um, I live in the Adelaide Hills and we have quite a lot of koalas in our area and I I regularly see koalas, um, you know, going up and down my street. So, um, and yet I'm also aware at the same time that in other parts of the country where we'd expect to have lots of koalas like New South Wales and Queensland, they're increasingly um, threatened and struggling to survive. So I was really curious about that, that strange mix where some parts of the country have a lot of them and other parts don't and what was driving that. Mm. I was going to ask you about that, but before we go into that ambiguous state of the koala in Australia, I wanted to ask you about the way we Australians and the different actors, I suppose, in conservation and cultural admiration uh, value the koala. We had uh, an earlier guest on this morning, Professor Rowan Lloyd, who was talking about the Great Barrier Reef, and he spoke about the drivers of the reef's value. He said one is beauty and the other is its economic value. So I was interested to know, uh, you've spent a lot of time around koalas and koala folk over the past 
next few years. What do you see as the major elements underpinning the koala's value? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, we haven't always valued koalas um, in the same way that we do now. Um, Early in Australia's colonial history, you know, we hunted them for fur and drove them to near extinction, which is a bit of our history that we a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, And it was only in the 1930s that we really started treating them in the way we we would recognise today as iconic, cute, furry animals, you know, beloved um, of of small children and adults alike. Um, And, you know, that was probably driven by those, you know, those famous books like Blinky Bill and, um, you know, in in other... They also appear in, you know, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie and those sorts of children's stories. Um, So I think today, though, they are really... They're they're a big conservation animal, so they generate enormous amounts of of money um, in terms of, um, you know, people donating... Um, to, to wildlife causes, so they're they're a really important flagship species for conservation. You know, the 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 koala in the burning forest is as iconic internationally as the the polar bear on the diminishing iceberg. So you know, they, they are like the Great Barrier Reef. They are one of those iconic conservation species um, around which a lot of other conservation messages can be pinned. And I imagine also uh, they sort of have an economic value in terms of the tourist dollar as yeah, well. Yeah, they, they do have a big tourism dollar. And certainly overseas, because they're very hard to keep overseas, um, they're a big um, economic benefit. for. Well, they're also a big economic cost for zoos. They're very expensive to keep, but mm. they also drive a lot of funding. And, and a lot of funding for koalas actually comes from American zoos. So um, American zoos, in order to keep animals in their zoos, they are required by their own legislation to provide funding to for in, in situ conservation in the country of origin. So a oh, lot interesting. of conservation funding funded by American zoos. And you mentioned the undulating path that koalas in different states have taken. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that trajectory and the way in which disruptions um, that have occurred in Australia, both natural disasters, colonialism and Mm. so forth, uh, and conservation efforts have affected the way the koala population has evolved? Sure. Um, I mean, koalas have had a, um, you know, like a lot of Australian animals, they went through a a really rough patch in their prehistory with the climate oscillations in the Pleistocene when, which you know, drove the megafauna extinct in Australia. Koalas also had a very dramatic reduction in population, and that's visible in the, in the genetics of koalas. So we can see there was a, a massive population bottleneck at that time. Um, but in terms of, of more recent history, we also had quite a dramatic extinction event around the koala hunting, which I mentioned when they were hunted for fur. And they were declared extinct in South Australia and um almost extinct in, um, they were regarded as becoming extinct in Victoria. They, I think they said they, they only, they thought there were about 500 left in all of Victoria um, in the early 1900s. And so just a couple of patches in the Otways and Stresleckis and also French Island. Um, so the big populations were in Queensland and New South Wales. And of course, now South Australia and Victoria's populations have recovered largely through repopulation from the French island population. So it's a, it's a massive success in terms of 
translocate, you know, saving a species by putting them on an island and breeding them up, um, and then that population has now spread back out. Um, and, and, but the Queensland and New South Wales populations are now in dramatic decline. Um, and all of those populations are, of course, extremely vulnerable to mass bushfire events, as we saw in the Black Summer fires and also the Kangaroo Island fire, which wiped out um, probably up to about 40,000 animals on Kangaroo Island, just in koalas. Yeah, so turning to the fires, um, you're a bit of a fire expert. I know we've had you on the show before talking about preparation for fires and, as you said, you lived in the Adelaide Hills, so um, you, you understand about fire risk. One of the parts of the book I found interesting was the chapter on fire and you made some really interesting observations about the impact of the black summer bushfires. Obviously, the the death toll of the koalas was enormous, but I think what I found interesting was the fact that you mentioned that loss of wildlife was counted for the first time alongside loss of human life. And I wondered how that came about and why that was so... Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. It wasn't, I mean, it was just a casual observation. I had never noticed people talking quite so much and quite so publicly about the loss of wildlife and, and the measurements of wildlife. And, um, and and I think that was an interesting phenomenon that obviously, um, you know, particular researchers and research organisations decided to, to publicise that more, more specifically. But of course, this, I'm sure most, most, Researchers are aware of this happening every time there's a fire in their area, and we we always know that fires cause localized extinctions and um, and and drive you know uh, pose a great risk to species. But but I've never seen that information picked up in the media uh, the way it was um, after the black. Yeah, it was massive. It was, and and I do I do think actually some of that may have also been driven by the koalas. There was a huge public outpouring of anxiety about the koalas um, internationally, um, as we as we know, and and I think that that perhaps that brought the other the other concerns to the fore as well. So I think it did lead people to start saying, well, you know, what about all the other species? Um, so so I think that was that was a really. I mean, it was. I was really pleased to see that because those sorts of impacts aren't usually discussed in bushfires. We're so concerned about the human toll that we we don't think too much about the environmental toll of those sorts of events. And you made the comment that we are far better at rescuing animals in a disaster than saving them from the dangers we've put them in. Yes, yes. Well, that's always our response to to bushfires. Generally, we're much better at. Um, you know, reacting to them afterwards than we are to actually putting in place prevention strategies and, and focusing on the underlying causes. So, you know, the, the increase in fire frequency and fire severity over the last five to ten years is, is really concerning um, and, and that's what we really need to be looking at, the, the drivers for that, which, which are obviously climate change factors. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this morning. Um, we've only been able to touch on a very small part of this book. It covers so many different things. You you dip into the habitat, the genetics, the psychology and brain of the koalas, and, and also some really interesting um, ponderings on what koalas can teach us about ourselves. And it's all beautifully uh, incorporated in this lovely creative writing style that, that you have. It's quite an elegant 
book, I, I feel. So dip into it, listeners. It's a, a great one uh, to learn a lot of different things and a few myths that you bust there as well, uh, Danielle. Thanks, thanks, Claudia. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. And that was Danielle Claude talking about Koala, A Life in Trees. The book is published by Black Ink and it's on sale now in bookstores. And you can also catch a little bit more about this in the conversation Friday essay, The Koala When It's Smart to Be Slow. And I will uh, pop that uh, link on our show notes. And a note that yesterday the federal government uh, has announced a 10-year plan for protection of Australia's wildlife from extinction. And the New South Wales and Queensland koalas are one of the 110 designated species uh, that have been noted for protection. So I guess um, that's good news for koalas and, and not so good news for the other 900 or so uh, endangered species. Okay, now we're going to move from our environment segment to Grace uh, coming up with our anti-militarisation piece. Yeah, so we'll be going a bit now into a very different topic. Australia is being groomed into becoming a weapons manufacturer and the major parties are complicit in this. Companies such as the Queensland company NIAO are one of the large privately owned firearms and munition suppliers. And recently, the Australian government has signed an agreement with them for the supplies of weapons and equipment to the Australian Defence Force. And they will basically be signed for next generation of weapons. However, with guns and armed weapons still around, Weaponization and militarization in Australia continue to arise, and this needs to stop. Now, I'll be speaking to Uncle Ned Jabin Chibam Targraves to discuss the no police gun campaigns and call for action on gun ceasefire. How are you, Uncle? Hello, good morning, good morning. Uh, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, Ned. Um, so, I just want to ask you, um, could you introduce to us about the No Police Gun campaigns, just for our listeners who are unaware of why there's this campaign? Well, yes, uh, look, um, um, in the Northern Territory, look, um, I have a strong, um, strong um, fight, fight against um, the guns, which I call it meaning ceasefire. No guns in remote community. That actually um, uh, sent a message to 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 Gadia. When I say Gadia, white people, um, white people, um, uh, especially the police uh, and, and 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 the government. We uh, we are saying. I'm saying. Look, look. We don't we don't really want guns in the remote community because way back way 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 back in uh, early um early 1965 as well as uh, uh, mid uh, mid uh, 70s and almost 80s um uh, during the time uh, there were no guns because everybody everybody in the community actually uh, trusted each other and um we uh, were doing things uh, in a way that the community was feeling safe, mm-hmm. and um, and 
have have their kids. We had our kids to you know uh, to be protected, and they were protected all the time, and they were they weren't uh, feeling afraid or. But all of a sudden, uh, we have we have this. Um, uh, 80s and 90s were good, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, police were very, 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 very helpful, very uh, good to work with, and the community uh, felt at ease. And um, and our children, you know, felt uh, safe because we knew that uh, we weren't going to have anybody having silly uh, silly thoughts, um, you know, uh, about guns and stuff. But the police were really good because, they, you know, the police would um, would come to the community and to us and, and mingle with us mm-hmm. and, you know, go out shooting uh, kangaroos and, and turkey, bush turkeys and emus and, you know, go out take them out bush and all that. And we were having a, a terrific time at the time. But when, uh, three years ago, when this thing happened to us, we cannot trust any policeman. We can trust policemen Suho and Lopley, but we cannot, we cannot, we cannot trust. We cannot trust any policeman. The community, because the um, community is traumatized, is traumatized. And also because um, uh, what had happened, that young brother um, uh, who actually was, um, was shot, uh, very shocking, very, very shocking. And um, we were all um, terrified and our kids were uh, very, very scared and um, and didn't didn't want to go to school. Didn't want to play outside. Uh, it was very, 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 very uncomfortable for our for our community as well as for our children. I see. Hello. That. Yep. Yeah. I'm here. No worries. Um, yeah. That's that's really awful, especially because the police are meant to be people that support us and uh, help us in defense but then it take they took our um i would say our niceness for granted and then this happened and it's just yes yes it's really helps um uncle nan i have judith here with me um she's actually one of our presenters for our breakfast uh, our earth matters uh, she, she... And hello, it's really interesting to hear what's gone on. And uh, also, I wasn't aware that the 1980s and 90s were a better time with uh, more community um, involved, you know, with people feeling safer and the police. So I'm really interested to hear that. How's the campaign going? What kind of response are you getting? Uh, The campaign, uh, you're talking about, you're asking me about... um, Karanjala Mojari, like the ceasefire, yes. no guns in the community in the, in, in the Northern Territory. Um, I am very, very disappointed because um, uh, we we have our um, uh, community 
legislative um, members who are very, 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 very important. And um, and um, we had our first, a second meeting uh, at a place called Wayfield, uh, the 1967, actually, when the walk-off started. And, um, and we had um, the Freedom Day that, uh, that week was going to happen. And um, also, um, uh, that Wayfield is a, is a community that, that, that early uh, people walked off from another community uh, because of their treatment and their, their um, un- unsafe, unsafe, I mean, um, uh, they were treated really, really bad, really bad. Anyway, when we had that meeting at uh, at Wayfield, mm-hmm. uh, we had ministers from all of our ministers in the Northern Territory come to us, and uh, I actually asked them about, you know, can you um, help us about the no guns? And um, I was talking to I can't remember the one of the mem- one of the ministers. Who was actually who was actually the police um, the minister? So I asked her about um, uh, about this, and um, she hasn't actually really re- responded to my question. All I heard was um, that um, Mr. Hargraves, um, we I cannot give you. I cannot give you an answer to mm-hmm. that, or I can't help you with that. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sitting there and, and and thinking, hey, hang on, <laughs> is this is the minister that we want? You know, you want to see another dead person, another dead young young man or young girl. Or for, for this case, it might be a white woman and a white man, white uh, young fellow. Mm-hmm. But, Mr. Um, Graves, I look. Um, I would like to help you, but um, my hands are tight, and um, and I um, I cannot discuss with you any you know any further information. So I left it at that. But to me. To me and to my community right across Australia, that is the message. Webby's dissent is not. It is not a very good one. We do not want ministers like that. We want ministers to work with us and try and and uh, fix to work with us in a way that is that is so helpful to the community. Yes, that's true. But then, Uncle, now there's companies that are signing contracts with the government for more weapons and bullets to be created and exported. So how is this going to impact the remote communities and how and what's going to happen? As you, as you probably can see, all the bullets are made here. All the guns are made here. Yep. And very surprising. Uh, you know, right across Australia, I assume uh, they are. Uh, you know, they supplying bullets and guns um, 
to the to the police to the police that work out in the remote communities, and the bullets and the guns that killed one of our young fella. Uh, one of our young fellow just walked up. He, he was killed. Why? Where from? That that rifle, that bullet came from. It came from here. Not only that, many, many, many earlier, you know, they were shot. And then um, again, I, think, I assume it goes back right back to, you know, early 70s and you know, 80s or whatever, you know, the years that our, that our loved ones being, um, uh, you know, in police and custodies and stuff, all the, you know, all the things that happened. But we are not safe at, at this very moment. We are not safe. We are calling to stop guns in remote communities. We do not want this, this um, these guns that are uh, that are uh, being sold to to Indonesia and uh, West Papua, and you know uh, we don't we don't want that. It never should. They should do away with it. They would they would do away with it and go. You know, like stop it. We don't want that. Uh, our, um, we don't want our community uh, to be to be flooded with um, with guns and bullets, and we have you know um, a mob being shot by the police. We don't want that. And we are, we are saying, Karinjala Mojari, Karinjala Mojari, and that's what we're saying. We're saying. Ceasefire. We don't want it. Yeah, that's very true. And because especially when with all the exports that are also going to other countries like Indonesia, this will not only create more warfare and also more opportunities for police and authorities to use guns on people. Yes, and uh, we uh, we... You know, our, our community doesn't know about it. I mean, they do know about it, but they don't hear it every day that 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 these things occur to our to our people, to our community. And I'm glad that I came here today. I came here to uh, to go back and tell my people that you know uh, we have. We are people, uh, or companies who are making bullets, not only in the, in the cities, but to to send it send it overseas, and um, and our lives are in danger. Our children, our future children, are in danger. Now, we need to stop this, Australia needs to think, needs to think and stop whatever it is. They need to stop because we don't want it.
we don't want our generations to to lose their lives just over these stupid guns and bullets that are floating around. Yes, that's very true. And um, if this is not going to be stopped, then more and more people, especially innocent people, uh, kids, fa- uh, your uh, people's loved ones will be impacted from all this. And um, Uncle, you're attending the Disrupt Land Forces that's happening in Mijin at Brisbane. And it's currently going on, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Could you, share what, could you share to us what will you be talking about there today? Uh, today or maybe hopefully the next coming days? Yes, I think I think we're going to uh, one of the places uh, today. Uh, I I don't know that place, but um, I forgot the name anyway. I think we're going over to see the. They're gonna we're gonna go and see where they um, they make bullets and the company that it's you know they they get it. I don't know what they do, but they they. Um, uh, they're going to take me there and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to you know, go through the I talk s- through and they're going to tell me, show me what they do there, you know. And, it's, and it is it is so disgusting right across here. It is disgusting. Very, very disgusting. I see. So basically you're um, at... Brisbane today, you'll be um, you'll be looking at a company. Uh, is it NIOA? I think it is. Yes, I um, see. Yes, so this yes, is the company uh, that uh, is a Queensland company exporting uh, firearms and munition suppliers to the uh, yes. Australian Defence Force. And yes. uh, how, are there going to be a lot of people there to uh, look at the look at what they're doing and protesting in front of them? Yes, um, I think. Um, I know that they're taking me there, and I'm gonna see. And there are a lot of lot of people coming with this. A lot of our supporters um, are coming with this, and um, I look. I am so shocked. Never, never, ever, I thought that something like this in Australia happens. It is so, so disgusting. Very, very disgusting. Um, you know, we would, well, you know, my people, our community, um, you know, we don't get to hear uh, what's happening in Sydney. Only, only, you know, certain things uh, that they talk about. But, um, with the guns and bullets, uh, we don't much hear about that. But I am so so shocked, and uh, it it is it is so great to have you know they have brought me here, and I I uh, I thanks you know this group of people uh, to tell us, show us. Show me something that I, I I haven't really known all this, you know. But I'm gonna go back and tell my people 
This is the bullets. This is the guns. From here has killed a loved one. Yes, that's very true. And obviously over here as well, and for many people who are listening, um, we should we should go and tell people that there are guns and bullets that are being made. And it's not just being used here in Australia, but it's also being exported to many other places. And yes, we need yes. to understand that this is actually very serious and it's we need to talk more about it. It's, it's not mentioned much because no one really cares about it. Sometimes maybe what? it's not affecting them, but yeah. But now it... Now it, um, I think, when I look at it now, it brought to my attention that that is, this is, so you know, it has, it's uh, gone too far, and and it's very very uh, disgusted, and the community, in the communities, uh, I think in the Northern Territory, we feel. You know, I feel I, I know I've seen it and I heard it, uh, and I'm so glad that my friends actually, you know, has brought me. Now I got to go back and tell my people. I got to tell my people. You know, we have a company that that sell bullets, that uh, sell guns um, here in, um, in Australia, and also, you know, as you know. Uh, Itself right across, you know, overseas and and kills uh, people. That's our. This is our our uh, our community, our our um, country. Who is trading and to make themselves look, um, you know, look smart or. Or brave or something. It's not a brave thing. It's not to do with that. We need to uh, tell this government, you know, we don't want it. They should do away with it. Hello? Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying is, in the end, you know, it's about money. I think that's what uh, what is yeah, motivating this. Yes, yeah. yeah, making money, and and uh, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people in Australia aren't aware of. No, um, I, no, no, no. True. Look, um, when my friends told me about, and I, and I, I can't believe, I couldn't believe it, and I can't believe it today. You know, it's just, I, I rang, you know, home and families, you know, and, you know, they, they shocked. They shocked. Yeah, and I think it's interesting the way you've linked what happens in a community and then the production well, of the weapons. Community actually, you know, community actually, um, when they hear something like they, wow. We didn't know that. That is dangerous, you know? And they talk about it. You know? When the, and the news gets out, and um, uh, it's not it's not uh, like, um, you know, it's not a good thing to talk about. You know? We should be able to um, help our people and to make Australia better. 
but we can't do this while we have this kind of thing said to to our people and to other communities, other city, other other overseas people, you know, dying because they want to make money, they want to make profit, and um, and who the who the bloody hell are they anyway? You know, they they just worrying about getting rich, mm-hmm. and it's it's it shouldn't be that. Yeah, that's correct. Especially um, because this all all they all these people, the authorities, they're just gonna. They, all they do is just care about money. The companies, especially who are making these ammunition suppliers, did all they do is just care about money, and that's that's all that matters to them. The lives of people don't matter until it actually affects them. But but um, specifically, um, Uncle, um, we're gonna have to wrap this up sooner. Um, can I just get you get you to um, just share with us what what can we do now to continue the fight? Well, you know, um, I feel that we, you know, um, the whole of Australia should stand against this this greediness and so cruelness people are doing. They think they're doing a good job. They're not doing a good job. They are destroying our country, you know. And they're making themselves anyway, um, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to stand with these people. I'm going to stand for my people that um, we do not want this, and we do not want guns in in remote communities. Uh, we don't want that because it feels and makes us feel um, uncomfortable. You know, I don't want to be, and I don't want to see, I don't want to be the one walking around in my mora, in my mora, when I say mora, community, my home, in fear. I don't want that. I don't want to, I don't want to be do that. I want to be able to to feel free, and especially with our with our children, we should never, ever, ever be afraid, be uncomfortable in a world like this, as well as uh, many others. I want to thank you so much for having me on your radio and giving me this opportunity to tell my people, to tell our community that our our, um, our lives, our future is in the hands of these horrible people, you know? Uh, anyway, my name is Ned Hagley. Yeah, I'm yes, from Yundamo. Yes, Uncle, thank you so much for today. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, thank you so much for sharing us. And um, hope everyone who is possibly at Brisbane, you can head on to uh, see Uncle and or hopefully join the protest as well. Thank you so much, Uncle. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And so that was Uncle Ned.
um, speaking about the NIOA company and also about um, weapon manufacturers and the major parties complicit in this. Um, so FFCAN, not warfare protesters, are out in force in Mijin and colorful creative opposition to weapons manufacturing as part of the Disrupt Land Forces 2022. And a coalition of First Nations peace and environmental activists have highlighted the reality of these weapons trade. Um, a few of them have been arrested, such as George and Irene Demara. Um, they they spoke sorry not arrested sorry they they spoke powerfully against nuclear weapons and police weapons and the use of Australian weapons and how this has um, trained to destroy First Nations lands and people. Um, there were actually other. Uh, arrest. There were eight of them. One was Australians Green, John O'Street. Uh, he was pres- one of the person was protesting onto a footpath, and police arrested him and charged him with trespass. Uh, trespass. Um, for updates on all this, stay tuned to Three CR Breakfast. We'll be speaking with organizers and community members from eight a.m. each morning. To catch updates, head on to treecr.org.au slash Disrupt Land Forces 2022. Um, so Judith and Claudia, so thank you so much for being here, actually. It's been a pleasure. So much fun being in the studio. Thank you to all our guests this morning. And just a note that the Socialist Alliance Melbourne and Green Left is hosting an eco-socialism event this Saturday on October the 8th, which uh, will have a number of workshops, including one on the intersection of capitalism and war. Thank you so much to all listeners. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.